Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. It's our first show of 2024, so from us to you, a very happy new year. And we're ringing in the next 12 months with a review of one of this season's most talked-about films, The Boy and the Heron. The movie from Hayao Miyazaki, co-founder of the Japanese animation firm Studio Ghibli, offers once again a richly textured and imaginative animation that is chock-full of heart. The film is set in Japan in 1943, and it follows 12-year-old Mahito as he struggles to settle into a new town after the death of his mother in a tragic fire, the result of wartime bombing. When an impish heron suggests that his mother is still alive, he enters an abandoned tower, falling down the rabbit hole and into another world. The film is a layered and shape-shifting kaleidoscope of colour, worlds and strange creatures. And in typical Studio Ghibli style, this is underpinned by profound explorations of what it means to be human, our relationships with one another and nature, and how the past leaves it its stubborn imprint on our futures. To get a flavour of this extraordinary and at times puzzling piece of cinema, let's begin with a bit of the trailer. Dear mother, she's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. What is this place? This world is filled with the dead. I know it's a lie. But I have to see. I'm looking for someone. Let's go. Okay, a little bit from the dubbed trailer of The Boy and the Heron there. And joining me, other writer and film critic, Simran Hans, and the film critic for The Telegraph, Tim Roby. Happy New Year to both of you. Lovely to have you both in the studio as well. Great the, old, the old brains trust is back in business, I think. <laughs> so lots to discuss with Miyazaki, possibly the great directors, the great filmmakers, final work. He's 83 years old, I believe, or he was at the time of the making of the movie. So we're in sort of, we're in Ridley Scott Scorsese territory, uh, which we talked about a little bit last year, Tim. I'm going to start with you. I've tried to describe a little bit in the introduction the world that Mihito lives in and the world, the fantastical world that he, he kind of enters when he walks into this this forbidden tower, as it were. Is the world of the boy and the heron a sort of typical Miyazaki world and Miyazaki universe? Yeah, you could almost call it archetypal. Miyazaki kind of threatened to retire about 10 years ago mm. when he made The Wind Rises. I would say about The Wind Rises that that feels like a, a late style type of film. It felt quite valedictory. Mm. Um, and... Um, rather mournful in some ways. And the curious thing about this film is I don't feel as it feels like late style. It feels like a recap of earlier style, a recap of almost some of his very first ideas, motifs, and the stuff that his entire career was filled with. Um, There are so many buoyant sequences and conceits and ideas in this film being thrown up. Uh, But what I kept thinking of was his earlier films throughout it, I must say. Um, Everything from the kind of pastoral idyll at the beginning where this bereaved child is brought to the countryside to live with his father and his aunt, which is very reminiscent of a lot of Ghibli beginnings, things like My Neighbour Totoro, Mm. but also Arietti, which is actually not a Miyazaki film, but it's another Ghibli film. And then the kind of great looming citadel in the middle, which calls to mind things like Castle in the Sky, but also some of the other ones. Uh, Howl's moving castle, it's like the tree. And then the kind of absolute, the sheer range of exotic 
creatures and fauna in this film feel like they've been kind of plucked from everywhere and you never know what's going to turn up next. You never know what, whether you're going to get a fleet of pelicans attacking some strange <laughs> sprites or you, you've got this heron which has this strange ogre-like creature sort of stuck inside it, this strange little man. We'll get to the heron. We'll get to the heron. <laughs> and, and there's plenty more anyway. I'm just throwing up a few of these things. Yeah. But it's, like I say, it almost felt to me like a kind of grab bag, almost like yeah. a kind of like bumper sort of celebration in a way of everything that Miyazaki kind of wanted to bring to the cinematic form. And I did, I really enjoyed it on that level. And visually, it's about as sumptuous as any of their films have ever been. I will say I'm I'm really quite looking forward to seeing it again and kind of getting the hang of it maybe a little better next time. Um, still processing what on earth it meant to me, all of it. That's a good point. I saw this film right at the end of last year, so it's kind of still kind of fresh in my memory. And I would like to see it again to allow some of the pegs to fall into the holes in which they hopefully belong. I don't know. <laughs> Let's talk about the look of it, Simran. We'll talk about the heron. We'll talk about some of these characters, such as they are, as well. But let's talk about the look and feel of it, because it is a very, as Tim was suggesting, it's a beautiful film in part. Some of it's bathetic and bonkers, as we're used to with Miyazaki as well. And some of it is painterly and stunningly beautiful. So where are we? What does it kind of look like to you? And in terms of Miyazaki's universe as well, where are we? I should preface this by saying that I am not a Hayao Miyazaki completist. I'm not a Studio Ghibli head by any means, but I'd say I was a casual fan, you know. Mm. I've seen Kiki's Delivery Service, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle. I've kind of seen the hits, right? And so I come to this film with, I don't know, like an an absence of baggage in a way. (laughs) I think it will mean a great deal to people who are really invested in this universe and and the worlds that he's created. Um, But I also think for a casual viewer like me, there's so much to kind of enjoy and sink into. I just found it utterly transporting to kind of like give you a a sense of, of what it's like. It's very hard to describe something that is so visual, right? We're in the countryside. It's very pastoral. It's very beautiful. And then this little boy, Mojito, wanders into this great big tower. And on the way there are, I mean, maybe we'll come back to the frogs because that's a sidebar. <laughs> the frogs oh, and the fish at the same time. Right. And but, like, yeah, yeah. But so, there are some sort of amazing dream sequences yeah. in this, aren't there? As we might call them. Yeah. Or are they dream sequences, you know? So he, he goes into... <laughs> or the, are they? Yeah. <laughs> he goes into this tower and the tower is kind of like a threshold between our reality, Mojito's reality, and these other alternate universes. And they're kind of ruled by different things. So we have one that is sort of ruled by the sea. We have another one that is ruled by birds. And there are all these incredible creatures that are just... They're so specific, right? Can we get into the creatures? Yeah, let's get into the creatures. Let's go there. I mean... And they're shape-shifting as well, aren't they? They can do more than just swim, for example. Exactly. So one of of the creations in this in this film are these little sprites, spirits called the Warawara, and they're these cute, cuddly little white blobs that float up into the air, and uh, then they get kind of reborn as as children on Earth. They're souls, um, and there's these hungry pelicans that are feasting on them, and they're kind of malicious. There are giant multicolored parakeets. Imagine like an angry parakeet. It's like living in southeast London. (laughs) Bigger than you. Okay. Standing upright, armed with a knife and fork, ready to eat you. 
there's armies of these things. They basically patrol the citadel. And there is an army. They have a king and all the rest of it. They have a they have a king, the parakeet king. Tim, help me out. Yeah, yeah. What else? I was going to add to that the levels. I mean, there's a lot of complexity in the incidental storytelling here because there's a kind of a fire sorceress who we we understand to be. Linked in a way to the late mother of the, the main character, she probably is his mother, but he doesn't realise this for quite a while. And she tries to help out the Warawara by shooting fire into the sky when the pelicans are attacking them. But then she accidentally kills some of the Warawara in the process of this, which some of the other creatures have to tell her about. Oh, w- watch out! You're hurting the Warawara. So there's that going on. And then we, the pelicans are not just baddies as well, because there's this very sort of slightly sad, pathetic moment where a wounded pelican is sat next to a, a kind of outhouse toilet outside the <laughs> citadel, dying. And the main character has a little conversation with him. But he's sort of been cast out. They've been t- sent in, into the underworld. They've been they? sent into the underworld, and that's their only form of nourishment, is that the Warawara of all they've got to eat, eat. And so it's not a kind of like good versus evil simplicity, this thing. It's very multi-layered. Yeah. I had a friend describe it to me a bit as... Uh, he described it as anime everywhere all at once. Yes. Because it's just, there's so many layers. <laughs> there's a lot. verses of it, yeah. yeah. And, and in this tower, I mean, something that sort of struck me about this film is that it's freaky in a way that mm. some of his other films are less so. I mean, I watched Spirited Away when I was kind of fairly young, so I do remember elements of it being scary. Mm. But this film is kind of violent for a Hayao Miyazaki film. Yeah. There's a bit when Mojito... He doesn't want to go to school. He's being bullied at school. He's kind of a posh kid, privileged, middle class. And so in order to get out of school, he bashes himself on the head with a rock and starts to like quite profusely bleed. Um, that felt a bit kind of edgy for this kind of movie. Yeah. And I wonder how, I mean, we can, pop, pop, well, we can, we can tackle it now. This is the most, I think Miyazaki has gone on record as saying this is the most autobiographical film. He was sent to the countryside during the war as, as, as lots of children were to, for their safety and he had a very opinionated mother I always think the, the mothers in the Ghibli movies are often kind of quite weak ill ladies who live in far off do you know what I mean they always sort of put into Perda slightly and he had quite a distant a strong and distant father I believe so all these things kind of are tropes that run through lots of his films and I wondered Tim what, what you found of that because there is a lot of returning personnel apart from the crazy characters the crazy monsters there yes. are some returning characters and things in this. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned the kind of big lumpy old ladies who of often again reappear, yeah. sometimes in quite sinister forms in his his films. In Howl's Moving Castle, one of them is a, a bit of a kind of evil sorceress. And in this, you might expect to find a kind of an old retainer <clears throat> waddling around the, the lovely house where they moved to, but instead we get like nine of them. There's like so many of them. I'm like, how on earth do they yeah. afford this army of kind of maidservants in there? But they're a fixture of his of his environment. Almost anything that you might pinpoint as kind of a, a classic Hayao Miyazaki sort of trope or staple is to be found here somewhere, which is sort of what I'm getting at. But not only his directed films, but also some Ghibli classics beyond him, like Grave of the Fireflies, for Hmm. example, which has a similarly traumatic vision of kind of war-torn Tokyo and then a retreat to the countryside at the same time and is working through grief. And also it's stepping into the adult world. Almost the war is this this threshold in itself. On the other side of the war, this child is going to step into adulthood and is going to have to try and figure out what that means to him. Because before the war, you know, he had his mother and was clearly very attached to her. And so he's working through that that bereavement. The striking himself on the skull, as you mentioned, is quite a brutal moment, but it feels like he's sort of acting out his grief in that moment as well to me, uh, symbolically. And then as he 
enters the the citadel and he has to try and understand the, these systems of, of almost like government. There's this parakeet king. He doesn't really I was understand. quite lost in the, in the castle world. I, I get, I get lost, story. <laughs> but I feel as though that's the idea in that it's this, the adult world is this incomprehensible sort of hierarchy in which all this stuff's going on and you don't really get it yet and you're having to work your way into it and grasp what on earth's going on, find out your own place in it. So I feel as that the symbolism of, of this film is not by any means simple. It's very complicated, but I still don't entirely get <laughs> what it all adds up to for me at the very end. Because yeah. some of his films have such powerful finales. I do think Howl's Moving Castle does have one of those. And I think Totoro certainly does. It's a real all-timer. And this one, I'm sort of being pulled in so many different directions. It doesn't kind of coalesce for me into that final sort of moment of understanding. I don't know why. Do you, his, quite, some of his films have quite a moral sense, don't they? they? He was talking about climate change in films he made in the late 1970s, which was a, quite a Japanese obsession, I think, with the nuclear kind of memory and all the rest of it in, in Japan. So they were quite specific to some of that. And the sort of despoilation of the, of the oceans and stuff like that, which he picks up in some of his movies. If there was a moral in this, Simran, or even if the story was pointing to one. I found, as Tim's suggesting, I found moments of it utterly charming, some of it really moving, the stuff with his mother and, and these sort of mirrorings of, of, of his of his aunt slash sister, of his aunt slash stepmother, I should say, who who gets lost in this in this castle as well. But I wondered if you could pick some sort of moral universe that he's some moral lesson or simply a story that he's telling with this. I mean, for <laughs> me what it what it really boils down to is the title of the book that he picks up at the beginning of the film, mm. which is also the Japanese title of the film, How Do You Live? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a film about how do you live with pain and grief and knowing that there is horror in the world, knowing that you experience loss. How do you go back to your normal life when you have experienced all of this chaos. I think that the message is sort of fairly simple, but what is interesting, unwieldy, complicated, probably won't be to everybody's taste, is how kind of chaotic and messy the journey is, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a bit of a trite way of, of putting it, but I think it's intentionally discombobulating and chaotic. I'll be honest, I couldn't always follow the narrative myself (laughs) as well. There are different universes that Mojito falls into. How he gets there is quite mysterious. Along the way, he does encounter these various mother figures. So at the outset of the film, in the opening scene, in, in a devastating opening sequence that's sort of beautifully illustrated with this sort of glittering fire, he loses his mother. Um, as is, is customary in a lot of cultures, his father is then betrothed to the mother's sister, so keeping the wife in the family. Uh, mm. I, I don't think that's particularly unheard of. He sort of has to accept his aunt as his mum, which I think he struggles with in the film. One of the old ladies kind of accompanies him on, on the journey. She becomes a bit of a mother figure. He encounters her in another lifetime, in another sort of timeline. Yeah, when she's a, in this sort of timeline of strange sort of European kind of romantic whimsy which Miyazaki seems to love so much the kind of well, she seems twice as tall as well yeah. because you shrink when you age and more than anywhere yeah. else in a Miyazaki film you halve in height when you age yes <laughs> and she's like a seafaring warrior who guts an enormous fish and she has all this power he meets the fire witch who is another kind of version of his mother he meets all of these interesting women and I, I suppose maybe that's Miyazaki's way of saying 
if we lose somebody in our life, there are other figures who can kind of fulfill their role. And also, it's the hard lesson of being a kid, right? When you grow up, you are alone. Mm. You know, you your parents won't always be there for you. That's something that he comes back to in a lot of his films. It reminded me of Spirited Away, where you have the, the protagonist of that film. Her parents kind of enter the spirit realm and then they turn into pigs, I, I think. And mm. So she has to kind of go on a quest to be okay without her parents to rescue them but also to survive yeah i think that this is a, a continuation of, of those themes it's weird isn't it and curious how absent the dad is throughout so much of this story even though he's sort of nominally well he's the, away at the factory making warplanes he's away at the factory it's for warplanes yeah. but in terms of his custodianship of his son he's very absent and he's sort of this gallant dashing kind of rather handsome figure who's sort of briefly there but just not enough not enough to help his son heal. His son has to kind of make his own way. Yeah, and that's why, like you say, all of these all these incidental encounters add up to to something. And I think it's perhaps the patterning, as you say, is chaotic. It's one thing after another. And when you're expecting a kind of interweaving and callbacks and a sort of a real uh, tapestry in that way, instead he just gives you a barrage of new stuff every like five minutes and you're like oh wh- why are we all tangled up in paper now inside the citadel what is that was happening so beautiful, wasn't it? very gorgeous <clears throat> but like you say the the fire sequence at the beginning is unbelievable mm. um it's, some of the landscapes that they pass through are just stunningly beautiful i love there's so many beautiful reflections in lakes which he's always been very good at and i'm i'm very drawn to the the kind of crumbling citadel thing i always want to explore those crumbling citadels roby's follies yeah i just love them <laughs> and there's a bit where he's he's sort of found the citadel because the heron has perched itself on one of its parapets and he kind of crosses this river and finds a small entrance into the citadel almost at that kind of sewer level and starts sort of clambering up it and there's a moment where his mum calls and says no 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 come back now come back now and you're desperate for him to ignore her because you just really want him to get inside and he does he starts crawling up the steps and, yeah. but they, they kind of then eventually pull him away the old ladies come and drag him out with their broomsticks and you're like well we'll go back there soon I hope Yeah, I don't know there's something so inviting about those realms that he conjures for you that I was very satisfied by all of these beginnings in this film and all of these beginnings yeah so let's talk about the heron because uh, the heron is a sort of He's a, you think he's a harbinger of doom or something at the beginning. He's a big, a big angry bird. And then he talks, he, then he turns into a sort of Shakespearean fool and shows the other side of the argument or kind of, you know. So what about, what about the heron, Simran? What does he, what does, what's his job? <laughs> well, so he, his job initially is, is to incite the action, right? So mm. he lures Mojito into the tower when he realises that he's sort of been tricked in a way or he's been lured to a false promise, Mojito kind of fires an arrow at him and pierces him through the beak, which then kind of stops him from being able to fly and reveals his true identity, which is not this gorgeous, elegant grey heron, but is a creepy little man (laughs) inside the heron's mouth with full human teeth and a full head inside the beak. It is terrifying. And a massive, disgusting red nose yeah. that sweats at the slightest provocation of these huge <laughs> beads of sweat sort of bulge out on it, which Honestly, slightly triggered me, I have to say. He is the stuff of nightmares. He is me. Mm. Horrifying. Yeah. I just, I love how vivid that is mm. and how scary and weird and freaky it is. And I just wanted to sort of call back to, to what Tim was saying about how it's this grab bag of ideas. There's so much going on. I wonder if this is Miyazaki feeling like he's running out of time and wanting to just put everything Mm. out there. And I'm kind of okay with that. I think that's kind of bold. I do think that there 
would maybe be a tendency for a different filmmaker to make something that's incredibly polished and final and clear. And I like that this is messy and unresolved, just like his feelings about being an artist who maybe still has more to give. Maybe the medium is the message, right? Maybe that's the thing. I wanted to talk about, very briefly, the character of Mejito himself. He's in every, pretty much every frame in this film. And I wonder what sort of journey, what sort of journey, if anything, he, he goes through, whether he grows up, what he learns, or whether he simply goes on a rollicking adventure. Where do we think? Well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit in terms of his emotional journey with the grief and processing and becoming more of an adult. But The other kind of strand of the story that we haven't talked about is the person at the top of the tower, right? The Grandmaster. Oh, yeah, the wizard. The wizard. His great uncle, it turns out. Exactly. So he has a a relationship to Mojito and there's an element of Mojito kind of trying to chase his ancestry in a way, um, but also the Grandmaster trying to connect to a successor, trying to make sure that the person who inherits the tower and therefore controls the universe is going to be able to keep things in balance and isn't going to throw everything into chaos. And Mojito's job at the end of the film is to be able to arrange these magic stones in a way that sort of keeps the order of the universe intact I definitely think that's a metaphor for Miyazaki kind of wondering what is going to happen to Studio Ghibli and the legacy of these films when he is no longer making them. There's a lot of anxiety there about, you know, what the future will hold. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, we all want to have a second viewing, I think, of The Boy and The Heron. Thank you for your uh, your wit and your wisdom on that. Simran, we're going to come to your further reading choice and that is the chronicles of narnia yes so i which some people may not be surprised to hear i suppose yeah so maybe this is a slightly obvious choice but i thought there were some interesting parallels between the lion the witch and the wardrobe and this film in particular and i i thought it was a nice opportunity for people to revisit the 2005 film which i feel quite nostalgic about actually it was directed by the guy who made shrek um, if that's of interest to anybody. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's based on the C.S. Lewis books. It stars Tilda Swinton as the White Witch. Yeah. James McAvoy as Mr. Tumnus the Fawn. And uh, I believe Liam Neeson as the... See, uh, Aslan. As Aslan the okay. Lion. And so I just think, like, yeah, there are there's some really clear parallels between The Boy and the Heron and this one. You know, it's an evacuation narrative. It's about a middle-class kid who gets shipped off to the countryside in the case of the line which in the wardrobe it's a group of kids mm. they go through the mirror in this crazy mansion to in this country house to uh, another realm they have a, a evil controlling figure or possibly evil controlling figure looming over them but an- another thing that i thought was interesting was that in the boy and the heron mojito when he hits himself over the head with the rock right he says this is a sign of my malice you know yeah. he's a flawed character in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you have Edmund taking the Turkish delight and showing his weakness and kind oh, yeah. of entering the world of sin, right? And I think The Boy and the Heron is a little bit less... Uh, less mus- muscularly Christian. <laughs> you know what? I almost said exactly that phrase, Rob. Uh, I was going to say less Christian yeah. in its um, kind of morals and its sense yeah. of good and good and evil. But I do think that there are some yeah interesting parallels between the two. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, yes, there are so many parallels between that. C.S. Lewis as well makes a teeny bit more sense for me. But hey, 
we're there. And I haven't seen I haven't seen any of the film adaptations of those books actually, but I should check that out. I like that. Twenty oh fives is that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? That particular one. Yeah, they uh, called yes. it the Chronicles of Narnia, didn't they, for the American audience? Oh, they rolled it all into colon one. the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's a few yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The chron- <laughs> the Chronicles. Yeah. Tim, what have you chosen for us? I've gone for one of my faves, which is called Laputa Castle in the Sky from mm. 1986. I've watched it a few times, and it's the one which just has the most alluring, sort of, and overwhelming image to me, which is this sad fortress floating in the sky uninhabited, uh, which the heroine of the film, in this case, discovers on the course of her, her kind of adventures. I feel as though Miyazaki is so drawn to this that he kind of keeps coming back to similar ideas. So you have kind of Howl's Moving Castle as well mm. later on. And, and this one, it's not in the sky, but the Citadel is a, a portal in The Boy and the Heron to all sorts of other dimensions. So it has this strange kind of floating quality as well. And the heroine is the first per, uh, character to reach it too. Um, but the thing that there's so much beautiful design in, in Cast in the Sky, I just want to, want to wander around that particular environment all day. She discovers it and she's trying to get to the bottom of why it's uninhabited and deserted and wandering around. And then while she's on the castle, she finds this solitary robot, um, which is sort of out of commission, but has been doing the gardening. It's a gardening robot. There's a lot of gardening to be done on this completely uh, overgrown, moss-covered fortress. Uh, And the poignancy of this creature, as it were, being there on its own and the mysteries it holds is a lot of the allure of the film for me. And sort of watching their very, their kind of quite brief relationship is somehow the, the core of the film in a strange way, uh, even though plenty more going on around it in terms of action and intrigue. I often forget what the sort of outcome of the overall story is in this film, but I don't mind that because it means I'm sort of drawn back every time to kind of rediscover it uh, and to find that, that moment in the middle, which is kind of just a magical idea, this idea of kind of huge civilization that's been reduced to simply one piece of the puzzle, if you like, and it's just this machine that's there doing the pointless job of gardening on a castle which no one inhabits and no one might ever see again. And I feel as though it almost qualifies as sort of a uh, one of those sort of science fiction parables in the way of Wally, mm. for example, or any, pick any any kind of robot character in, in sci-fi which has this kind of pathos because it's slightly alone. Uh, you know, Hal in 2001 yeah. even, or any of those. Yeah. Uh, maybe without the creepy edge of Hal. But something about unlocking the secrets of this this character, this robot, and finding out what on earth's been going on on this castle just draws me back to that film time and again. I will admit, I often forget what the outcome of the story is, but in a way I like that about it because it makes me want to go back and watch it again uh, and remember it, what happens with her and with this with this, with this this being. So I'm... Um, it's I'm, got a lovely lyrical quality, that film. It, it does, too, yeah. Like Naushka as well. And you wanted to mention Grave of the Fireflies, which is a very kind of, well, almost a factual account, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that is a, a drama, a more straightforward drama early from... Uh, Miyazaki's career. Y- yes, well, in fact, that's not directed by him. Oh, is it not? But by Isao Takahatu. I think I may be wrong. I think he's the fellow founder of Ghibli with Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. They're the two founders, I think. It's, I think. Yeah. it's their saddest and most harrowing film by by a distance. I mean, it doesn't have the, the kind of elemental dimension or the kind of magical creatures or whatever. It is, in fact, really quite a simple, deeply poignant story of, of wartime bereavement with 
stunning kind of countryside scenes, but a sense of, of the kind of the sorrow in the backdrop, if you like, that just like pervades the entire film. It's absolutely heartbreaking. It's up there with some of the great Japanese war films mm-hmm. from earlier in the century, something like the Burmese Harp, for example, and some other really like powerful kind of reckonings with the the aftermath of World War Two. Yeah. It kind of gets put very high up the list of, of Studio Ghibli's achievements that one for a reason i think certainly at the beginning of this film you feel as though that's come right back in you come right back in but this time with the incredible animation which does this extraordinary kind of distorting effect on the characters faces like the the fire has kind of bent them out of shape which i found completely uh, like uh, otherworldly and unreal in a way but also very powerful well, thank you both so much for your take on The Boy and the Heron and also for, for strolling through Chronicles of Narnia and to some more Ghibli hits as well. Thank you, Tim. That is it for this week. My thanks to Simran Hans and Tim Roby. The Boy and the Heron is in UK and Irish cinemas nationwide now and in IMAX theatres from the 5th of January. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.